Lord's Day number 12 of the Heidelberg Catechism. I know it's in here. Okay, it's page 877. And as is our very sound and healthy tradition, we are going to confess the questions and answers of the Lord's Day number 12 together before uh, we discuss what they mean. Page 877 of your Psalter hymnals. And we're beginning with uh, question 31, which is under Lord's Day number 12. And we only have two questions, so it should be easy. Question number 31. Why is he called Christ, meaning anointed? Because he has been ordained by God the Father and has been anointed with the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet and teacher who fully reveals to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our deliverance, our only high priest, who has delivered us by the one sacrifice of his body and who continually intercedes for us before the Father and our eternal King who governs us by his word and spirit and who guards us and keeps us in the deliverance he has won for us. But why are you called a Christian? Because by faith I am a member of Christ and so I share in his anointing. I am anointed to confess his name, to present myself to him as a living sacrifice of thanks, to strive with a free conscience against sin and the devil in this life, and afterward to reign with Christ over all creation for eternity. So this morning we're going to be considering uh, two simple questions. I didn't say the answers were simple, I said the questions are simple. Uh, the two simple questions are, first, why is Jesus called Christ, meaning anointed? And second, why are we called Christians? So we begin with the question, why is he called Christ, meaning anointed? And I think it will be helpful for us to remember that this, of course, has an Old Testament background. Uh, who was anointed in the Old Testament? What offices? Kings were anointed. Priests. Prophets. Yes, we got all three. Okay, so the three offices in the Old Testament that are anointed offices are that of prophet, priest, and king. Why were they anointed? They would have been physically anointed with oil, right? It was an outward sign. You think of it as a sacramental sign. Why were they anointed? Anyone? What is the anointing? Let's just talk about kings. Ray, what does the anointing of a king in ancient Israel do? I did. You want to answer for a prophet or a priest? They're set apart. Okay, that's true. Yeah, it does. King's set apart. What What else? He's set apart to the office of king. It's a special distinct office, and in this case, in Israel, it's a holy office. It, it's about serving the Lord. Right? It's not that he became, God empowered him to go off and do his earthly thing. He's supposed to represent God in the world by executing God's, just, God's justice among his people. Okay, so it is set apart, but what else? Why is he being why are these men being set apart by anointing? Special purpose? Sarah. Yeah, so it's representational. I think that's really helpful. Uh, that the, the 
prophet, priest, and king are all pointing forward in some way to Christ. What else? Yes, Allison. Yes, so the oil symbolizes the Spirit of God. Why is that important? Doing God, yeah, that's not quite it, though. It is true they're supposed to do God's work, and they're supposed to speak God's word in his power. So the the idea here is is they're being ordained, right? They're, They're being ordained to a special office, a prophet, priest, or king. They're being publicly set apart. So when you see that the king in Israel is anointed by God, that means he really is the king. And you really ought to obey him. And by the way, if you don't, as long as he's acting lawfully in his office, you're not simply rebelling against him. You are rebelling against God. So partly it's an ordination for the office that says this person has God's authority to carry this out. The other part is it's an outward sign of the fact that God is going to empower them to do this work in his power, not in their own. You see that all throughout the Old Testament. Yeah, Charlie. They're what? Oh, they are positions of authority. But but the, the, the purpose for the ordination is to mark that out. But the authority is genuine, given by God, and that they're empowered by God for this work. And we know the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. So we actually see this in a number of places in the Old Testament. I want to bring you to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 11, beginning at verse 1. Right? This, this is an illustration of the fact that anointing also pointed toward the fact that the Lord had endowed his chosen prophets, priests, and kings with authority and power for carrying out their office. Now, the anointing is not in this passage. It's already taken place. So beginning at verse 1 of 1 Samuel chapter 11. Then Nahash, the Ammonite, went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, and I will gouge out all your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days respite, that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, Saul's now the anointed king, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, And Saul said, What is wrong with the people? But they are weeping. So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. Uh, I just draw your attention to that language. The Spirit of God rushed upon Saul. And then if you keep reading, you see that the Spirit of God led Saul to lead Israel to this great victory people really realized, yeah, you know what, that anointing that he had um, from the prophet Samuel, that really was God's blessing. God was going to empower him to carry out his will. Same thing's true of the priests and the prophets. Now, of course, regrettably, as you read the Old Testament, you discover that mostly the kings are bad. They're not doing God's will. And you'll see later on, God will draw, not, not the spirit from the sense of being born again. That's not what this is talking about. 
but the empowering spirit that he's given to Saul for carrying out his kingship, he withdraws that from him um, because of Saul's rebellion and sin, including uh, actually even consulting a witch at Endor. So you get that idea, those twofold ideas of anointing is anointing to set apart for office publicly so everyone can recognize this person has the authority of God and empowering the person. Everyone on board with that? Okay, so when is... Oh, good, Bob. Sure. That's a totally different thing. So Bob asked, when the women anointed Jesus' head with oil, or in one case, uh, uh, Mary anoints his feet with uh, nard perfume, what is going on? That is entirely different. That is not about office. They were anointing him for burial. That's Jesus' own interpretation. They may not have fully understood they were doing that. I mean, one of the things you want to think with Mary is, Mary probably had had this very precious nard for her brother. Because Lazarus would have been buried, and then you'd go in afterwards again, and you put this fancy perfume on them as a way of honoring them and also keeping down the stench of the decaying body. And after four days, the body stinks. And so it's very likely that now her brother's been brought back from the dead, and she's got this really precious nard, and she's saying, the best thing I can do with this is I'm going to pour it out as a thanksgiving act on Jesus who raised my brother from the dead. That's probably what she intended, but Jesus tells us that God's intention behind it is that he was being anointed for his own burial. That's different than this. That's not saying apart for an office. So that actually does raise my question. Oh, you had another question. Okay. The other question is, my question for you is, is when was Jesus anointed? He is the Christ, yet at his baptism. That is correct. So we can't help but use language that confuses us at times. You're going to talk about the pre-incarnate Christ, for example. We all do that. I do that. Uh, some of that language is even in the Bible. You can't help it. But we should realize that before his incarnation, Jesus wasn't yet anointed. In fact, when he was born, he was not yet anointed. Right? As to his human nature. We'll talk about that in just a moment. As to his human nature. He's not anointed with the Holy Spirit. It does take place in his baptism. His baptism is, he has an outward baptism by John with the water. That really would have been a sign of setting him apart as being a priest at 30 years of age, as it seems he probably was. But as he's coming up to the side of the river, God himself in heaven pours out the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove. It's visible. And he pronounces from heaven, this is my beloved Son, whom I am well pleased. God, the Father, anoints Jesus Christ as he's coming up out of the river for his ministry. And of course, the very first thing the Holy Spirit does is he drives Jesus in the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. That's done in the power of the Holy Spirit. But one of the things you should pay a little bit of attention to when you read the Gospels because it's easy for American Protestants to think of Jesus primarily as simply God, who's kind of has a body. He's God who has a body. So when he goes around and does miracles, of course he does miracles, he's God. What you'll see in the Gospels is, is that's actually pretty rare. Most of the miracles Jesus does are not done in his own power, they're done in the power of the Holy Spirit, because he's the anointed one. In fact, there's a miracle that takes place where a woman gets healed, Jesus wasn't even intended to do it. Right? The woman comes up and touches the hem of his garment. The Holy Spirit heals that woman. And he goes, I felt power going out from me. Right? But it was not his own volition that brought that healing about. 
in most cases it is his volition, but it's in, it's in conjunction with his anointed office as being um, of the Holy Spirit. So if you think about the Old Testament background, you bring in what Sarah was saying about the Old Testament prophets, priests, and kings um, being forerunners that pointed forward to Jesus, we should realize that part of the reason why Jesus is called the Christ is even they all pointed toward. He's the one who's not just anointed in part, he's the one who's anointed with the Holy Spirit without measure for all three offices. Um, in the Old Testament, the kings and the priests were always different. You can throw in Melchizedek if you want, but I think Melchizedek is a pre-incarnate, yes, Christ, pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. But if you look at uh, Israel's kings during the Mosaic uh, period, they're all different. Why is that? Why do you never have both a priest and a king from the time of Moses down to the coming of Christ? That's your question. It's right there in your Bibles. Bob. The, yeah. Bob has it right. There had to be a different tribes. Kings had to be of Judah. Priests had to be of Levite. There's a physical body distinction between kings and priests in the Old Testament. But when we get to Jesus, he's all. He's the prophet. He's the priest. He's the king. Anointed with the Holy Spirit without measure. So the first thing we want to see is Jesus is anointed to serve in all three offices of prophet, priest, and king. Um, but second, Jesus is the preeminent prophet, priest, and king. There is a fullness of Christ's anointing that radically surpasses the anointing of everyone who came before him. In fact, all the other prophets, priests, and kings are effective in their service only as they are connected to Christ. By the way, that's true in the New Testament. You may not think of this because we don't use oil to anoint, but we still ordain people. We ordain deacons, we ordain elders, we ordain ministers. Right? So, um, last week, I had the privilege of standing in as the minister who baptized two covenant children. I love that stuff, by the way. I love that stuff. But I hope you realize that I didn't baptize you. Jesus baptized you. Right? Jesus is the one who is effectual, who comes as his words are being pronounced over these children, and he baptizes them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Human ministers are only effectual in what they're doing, whether it's preaching or administering the Lord's Supper or baptisms or whatever it happens to be, because of our relationship with Jesus Christ. Whether that's true for all of you, because I hope you all believe in that wonderful Protestant doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. But your priesthood, your intercession for other people, is only effectual in Christ. Right? It's not like you're Christ's junior partners, where he does the big heavy lifting and you over here do other parts of it. Your work that is effectual is because you're in Jesus Christ. Now I need to address a common point of misunderstanding. I've already mentioned that many American Protestants think of Jesus Christ almost entirely in terms of Jesus being God the Son. They try to keep saying God the Son rather than the Son of God. Um, turns out that in the New Testament, uh, the phrase Son of God often is actually a messianic title rather than a claim to his deity. And you can get confused on that point. Right? So when the, the blind people on the road are crying out, um, Son of God, have mercy on us, they're saying Messiah. Because remember in ancient Israel, that before the coming of Christ and Jesus teaches us to pray the Lord's Prayer, individual Israelites would not consider themselves to be sons of God. They would have thought 
the whole nation of Israel is the son of God. That is what God says to the Pharaoh in Egypt. Israel, I'll come right to you then. Israel is my son, my firstborn son. Let my people go. But the king represents the whole nation to God and represents God to the whole nation. And therefore, the king distinctly would be known as the son of God. And so uh, I'm going to talk about God the Son. Let me give Ben a shot here before I, I go on with this point. It, it's actually a really hard thing to flesh out because we should remember that Pilate couldn't care less. Pilate just wanted to get rid of him. So we have to be a little bit careful about figuring out too much what what individuals had in mind. Um, I'm not Pilate, but I mean the, the high priest to Pilate I, I, is what we're talking about. Um, they're probably making a claim to Pilate uh, that while they're saying blasphemy was intended to undermine the relationship of Jesus to Caesar. Now that gets us pretty far down the road, but you have to keep in mind that Caesar claimed to be the son of God. So the, the, the real push that gets put to Pilate is anybody who makes himself a king, right? not anyone who makes himself God, but anyone who makes himself a king is no friend of Caesar. Uh, I don't know how far we can go with that, I will say there are places where people clearly say that Jesus is claiming deity for himself because he is. For example, when he says, for Abraham was, I am, they picked up stones, he's making himself equal with God, right? So it's not as though there are no claims to equality with God in the New Testament. There's plenty of them. Um, and of course, later on in the epistles, I was amazed, by the way, people treat like, uh, it's a it's a horrible um mystery hunt to try to figure out if there's anywhere in the New Testament where Jesus is clearly called God. It's all over the New Testament. You know, he's the creator. He brings everything into place. Jesus himself says, your eternal destiny depends on whether or not you believe in me. Right? I mean, they're, they're all claims to be. In first come the Hebrews and you hear, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. So that's not in question. I can't tell you about John's use there. Let me come back to this point, though. Sorry, I got these got us down rabbit trail. Most Americans tend to think of Jesus primarily as God, not primarily as man. But he's both. He's the God man. Um, when we talk about Jesus being Jesus the Christ, it's his human nature that is anointed with the Holy Spirit. See, Jesus, as to his divinity, has always fully interpenetrated the Holy Spirit. They're always together. They're never apart. Right? And, and, and of course, the Father as well. That's how the Trinity works. All three one being. All three persons of the Trinity are always together. But as to his human nature, he was anointed with the Holy Spirit. That means that Jesus is your king, your prophet, and your priest, not just as to his divinity. As to his divinity, by the way, he was all those things. Jesus has always been in charge of everything, completely sovereign, right? As to being God the Son. Uh, Jesus has always been the prophet for his people as God the Son. He is the Word. And talk about prophet is speaking God's word. He is God's word. And he's always been the priest for the people. Even in the Old Testament, Jesus is inter interceding on your behalf, on behalf of his people. In the New Testament, we now have something that's new. The man Christ Jesus is anointed with the Holy Spirit, so that the man Christ Jesus is also prophet, priest, and king. Um, think about 1 Timothy 2.5. This is what Paul says in 1 Timothy 2.5. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. You have to think of Jesus not simply as God, but as being truly God and truly man. And it's the man, Christ Jesus, 
got to. But Paul wants to draw our attention to that. It's the man Christ Jesus, who is your prophet, your priest, and your king. You see how this works? How Paul is drawing attention to the fact that our great high priest is the man Christ Jesus? As I say, of course, he is also the God-man. We don't want to diminish that. But um, in my experience, I've discovered that most conservative Americans, see liberals, they don't think of Jesus as being God. Uh, most conservatives tend to not think of Jesus really as being man. He's fully God, fully man, two distinct natures in one person forever. Questions about that? Yeah, so the question is, when we go back to, to Bob's question about uh, Mary anointing uh, Jesus' feet, there's actually a couple of anointings that take place, is that somehow pointing to the fact that he's sacrificed? And my answer to that is, no, I don't think it is. I think Jesus was anointed to be the sacrifice at his baptism. When he set apart to be the priest, you have to remember Jesus is the priest who offers himself up. Right? That was all there from the very beginning. Jesus, after all, is the one who was sent into the world with the name Jesus to save his people from their sins. So I think the anointing that we want to think in terms of the offices is not God using Mary. By the way, God does not use John, right, in the sense of the, the anointing of Jesus' baptism, other than to be, to be fulfilling an Old Testament priestly role in terms of the water being put on him. But, you know, I've done this before. So let me see if I can, I can do this really simply. You may have in your head a picture of Jesus going down into the water, like wades in the water, and he goes under the water as John baptizes him. Um, that is not what the New Testament teaches. It is possible, theoretically, we are not told the mode of Jesus' baptism. But when uh, the Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus, it is not at the point of his water baptism, it's as he's walking out the side of the river. The Greek here, my Greek scholars, is apa, which means away from. Right? And there's a little bit of blending how prepositions work at that time. They're a little careful pushing that, but it means it normally means away from, not out of. And so it's it's when he's as he's stepping out of the water that the Holy Spirit descends upon him as a dove, not at the hands of John. And that makes good theological sense because God is making clear. John is not bestowing the Holy Spirit upon Jesus. The Father in heaven is bestowing the Holy Spirit upon Jesus. And of course, the Father is the one who's declaring the words of institution, this is my beloved Son. And he's declaring publicly who he is. Okay. So I think that's when that takes place. And that the, 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 um, what's really being fulfilled there at the end is, um, because Jesus says this was intended for my burial, is not a sacramental rite, but it was a customary rite of anointing the dead in Israel. I could be wrong. Right. When they call Jesus the Son of God, they mean God the Son, right? So that's why you can't just take this and like stick it into a, um, a spreadsheet and go every time you see Son of God, that means Messiah. The, the terms are used in a mixed way. And by the way, that's how we use language ourselves. This is not some weird thing in the Bible. There's flexibility depending on context. But I do want to alert you to the fact that in context, Son of God is frequently used in the Gospels as a claim for Messiahship, not as a claim of deity, not as a claim to be God the Son. And by the way, that's one of the reasons when Jesus says Son of Man, the claim to be Son of Man in some ways was a stronger claim than being the Messiah. Because if you use Son of God to mean Messiah, 
When you say Son of Man, you think back to Daniel, where the Son of Man comes with great power and he's put in charge of everything in the universe. So when Jesus says he's the Son of Man, that's not a, oh, golly, gee, shucks, I'm not the Son of God, I'm just I'm just another human being. That's not it at all. He's saying, as we get at the end of Matthew, when it actually has taken place, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Daniel's pointing forward to all authority on heaven and earth being given to Jesus, right? The claim of Jesus being the Son of Man is a claim to great authority. I do want to move on to the next question. Must, no, Bruce is okay. Okay. Um, we should have a little bit of time. If that's true about Jesus, why are you then called a Christian? Anybody. You can read the answer, but you can also use your own words. If Jesus being the Christ means he's anointed, why are you called a Christian? Because you're in Christ. So, the first thing is, you are someone who's identified with Christ. That's at the most basic level. We know that theologically, that's we're in union with Christ, but outwardly, in the world, people go, you're a follower of Jesus Christ. By the way, that's how the term Christian was first used. It was actually first used not by Christians. It was used by non-Christians to identify that group of people over there. Though those people that are all following Jesus. By the way, remember, that means that's a sociological term. So Christian does not refer to you the, the state of a person if you're born again, right? It's like this whole body. I only mention this because sometimes people get really freaked out when um, our Anglican friends talk about their infant children being Christians. But that's actually not wrong. It's just a different way of using the language. After all, they are identified with the covenant community. If you think about Muslims, right, in, in the Middle East somewhere, you're not thinking about are they in their heart deeply committed to following Muhammad? No, they're identified with that group of people that's around the... Students be like a master. That means to be a Christian. It's very important that we follow Jesus. It's essential that we follow Jesus. Ultimately, if you do not follow Jesus, you're going to be separated and shown that you're not really a follower. Right? You're going to be shown to be a tear. It's essential that we are. right? But the term itself actually has to do primarily not with the degree to which you're following Jesus, hopefully that's more and more, but the fact that Jesus has chosen to identify with you. And you can see that in the New Testament, because how do we become Christians in the New Testament? There's two things. God acts. You know, God, God, so yeah, we get the sovereign work of God, the Holy Spirit. But what are the two things that most prominently get our attention drawn to? What's the say in the epistles? that mark people out as being Christians. Yeah, baptism and believing. So this is where the Anglicans are not on bad ground. If you've been baptized, you've been identified outwardly with Christ. Right? So you're, you're, you, you are identified with Christ. It makes you a Christian. We don't tend to do that in our circles. I'm not trying to change our circles. I'm just trying to help you not, not to go there wrong. Right? Because the key thing about being a Christian is you've been identified with Christ. And that's faith and it's baptism. And we, this is an aside, um, I think that modern Western Christians, and I'm part of this, um, we tend to underestimate the importance of baptism in the New Testament. When, when you read Paul's letters, you'll see that he talks about baptism with, with greater zeal than we tend to. And say that, I think it's a fair way of putting it. And um, our long-term desire um, step back from I was asked by someone this week. Um, 
it was struggle over with the faith. They were asking about, do you ever doubt your faith? And God said, you never doubt your faith. He asked your pastor, you never doubt your faith. And uh, my first response was, it depends what you mean. Because I'm not saying that you know that you're like horrible if you've ever done this, but like since I've been a little kid, I've never doubted God. I've never doubted who Jesus is. I just my father, God, he's good, I sin, I turn to him, he's gracious. I have, I have never had issues with that. So on a personal basis, I can't relate I can't relate that well to those who do struggle with that because also part of what happens sometimes with Christian. But if you mean by my faith the formulations of what I believe, right? Do I ever doubt those? I not only sometimes doubt those things, I try to doubt those things. I'm taking those things to the bar of Scripture going, is it what I, is the way I'm saying this or thinking this true? Right? Now that's not things like the Jesus rise from the dead, right? But there's all kinds of details. That's part of our Christian faith, right? Is, is um, I want to be reformed in my own thinking in life so that I'm more and more like God who revealed his word. Don't you? Right? Okay, well, one of the things that means is, is if I come to this reality that when I read the epistles of Paul, he talks about baptism with greater zeal and force than we do in our tradition. We do not try to get Paul, and we rephrase that, the Holy Spirit, to conform to our tradition. We go, hold on, let's try to grasp why God is saying this and get our minds thinking his thoughts. Yeah, I'm getting myself in trouble here with six minutes to go. Okay, um, questions on that? Sarah, that's okay. Yeah, that's a great that's a great question, and I think the answer is yes. So Sarah's question is: Does Christ continue to be localized in one in a particular way in the man Christ Jesus for eternity? And I think the the right answer to that question is absolutely that's true. Now that doesn't mean you're apart from Christ when you're not physically with His body, because as to His divine nature, He's everywhere. By the way, that's what we. You may have different views, that's fine. My view of the Lord's Supper is a Calvinistic view. So, unlike the um, Roman Catholics and the Lutherans who think that Christ's physical body is present in some way in the bread and the wine, I believe that Christ is present in the Lord's Supper because his spirit is everywhere, and his spirit unites you both with his spirit and with his body. That's the Calvinistic view of the Lord's Supper. So Christ is really present, but not really present in elements physically. I think that's true for all eternity, that Jesus Christ continues to have a body. We can actually confess that. Right? Two natures, one person, forever. So you will be able, in the new heavens and the new earth, to go and have a conversation with the physical man, Christ Jesus. There may be a big line. There may be a lot of people there. Okay? This is not Nokia we're going for. Yes, Bob? That's correct. So Jesus Jesus had a physical body from the moment he was conceived of the Holy Spirit in his mother's womb before that he did. That's actually, when you read the Gospel according to John, it makes a very important thing here on how the, 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 the uh, verb tenses work. Jesus was the Word. He always was the Word. The word became flesh. Right? That happens in time. Allison. Yeah. As first as first John says, now uh, then we're gonna see him as he is. Right? As he is. As Paul says in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 13, right? Now we see through a mirror darkly, then face to face. 
We are going to know God, see God, experience God with a far greater fullness in the age to come. I do have one more question for you before I let you go, because some of you are getting too high a grade on the test. Um, what offices do you have as a baptized believer? Let me just leave it there. What offices do you share in as a baptized believer? All three. Yeah, so we talk a lot, we talk a great deal about the priesthood of all believers because that was a point of controversy in the New Testament. But the Bible makes clear you're already seated with Christ in heavenly places. Indeed, you will reign with him forever. You are a king. And, and your calling is to speak God's word. You are prophets. You are prophets, priests, and kings in Christ. And you will be forever. Right? So that's a glorious calling. Uh, sometimes we, we make a mistake um, in the church of forgetting that, quote, the ordinary office of being a believer is, well, that's just not a big deal. No. You're royal. You are a royal priesthood, a chosen people. God, our sacrifice, our former life. John, so John's question is interesting. He asked if we're priests, do we have a congruent sacrifice? I'm a little reluctant to say congruent because Christ's sacrifice is unique. Uh, and he makes the point, of course, that even the, the political priests of the Old Testament drop up you know, bulls and goats. We can't do that. However, the Apostle Paul does talk about us offering up ourselves as a living sacrifice. And so I think the idea there is, is there, by the way, the um, liturgical, I guess the liturgical language, the word that's used in Greek there is uh, the word from which we get uh, uh, liturgy, right? So there is a sense which as priests you offer your life up to God. But I don't think you're offering other things up to God. Please don't offer your neighbors up to God. That is not, not your role. Yes, thank you. We offer up praise, yeah. Uh, but keep in mind that priests, so we're, we're focusing on the aspect, we're going to close right here, we're focusing on the aspect of priests offer sacrifices, which of course is so central, right, without the shedding of Christ's blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. But keep in mind that that's not all that priests do. Priests intercede. It, it, it's not quite so simple that you can just put two different blocks to it, but for simplicity's sake, prophets speak God's word to people, priests speak to speak from God on behalf of God to people, priests speak on behalf of people to God. The ordinary ministry that you have as a priest is interceding for each other in prayer. So, so exercise that. It's a great office. It's a great privilege you have. Uh, Peter, would you pray?